Do any of you find that you're losing things more frequently than you once did? That's not a good sign, is it? Is there anyone here that actively has something lost at the moment that you really are trying to remember where it is? I do too. It's somewhere in this building and I don't know where it is, a little item. Okay. Well, recently I was, uh, I was somewhere and it was uh, you know, kind of casual and I was wearing a ball cap and it was sort of sunny where I was and I started looking for my sunglasses because I didn't want to you know, protect my eyes and I'm looking everywhere and I'm checking the car and I'm looking in all the places I have it. And Actually, several years ago, I, I found a really cheap price on sunglasses and bought like about a dozen sort of identical pairs because I lose them all the time. So I just figure if I could overpower my loss losing things with, a, with volume, that, that would help. I do that with pens. I do that with sunglasses. Uh, secrets out. So I couldn't find my sunglasses. So I'm looking, I'm looking. And finally, I reach up to adjust my hat. And there's my sunglasses sitting on top of my hat. Sometimes when you lose something, you lose it in plain sight. And that's sort of what we want to talk about tonight. Uh, the people that encountered the Lord Jesus at the age of 12 in the temple in Jerusalem... We're looking, he was in plain sight. They were looking at the Savior. They were listening to him. They were interacting with him. They were discussing the law with him. Jesus was there. The Messiah was there. The Lord was there. God's anointed was right there in front of them. And it became, oh, that was an interesting interlude, and they, they missed it. And we want to talk tonight about how God uses this group of people. And we'll also see Mary and Joseph in this story slide into into this occasion. And God is indeed using this, this set of events to, to reveal and to prove and to verify and letting these people be the living witnesses, the living proof that what God was doing indeed was true. We start with our verse that we've looked at several times from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, which says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. That statement is repeated again in the Old Testament. It's repeated multiple times in the New Testament. And the standard that God says, if you want to prove something, you want to verify something, let it be not just one witness, not just hearsay, the mouth of two or three witnesses. So God, at these key events in all that he is doing, I just find it fascinating that at every juncture he sends these witnesses to be there whether or not they actually were believers or not. But they were there to witness these things being true. So we're going to talk about these men here in Luke chapter 2. We're going to call them top-level witnesses because they should have been the ones that uh, should have recognized it. Pick it up in verse 41 of Luke 2. Let's just read the passage, and then we'll go back and comb through it for what we want to see tonight. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the, the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. There's somebody that lost something as well. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. 
So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Of all of the things that had to have occurred between Jesus' very early childhood, first year or so, with the, with the shepherd story, the birth story, the, the, the wise men story in Matthew chapter 1, until he kind of comes on the scene as he is, you know, John the Baptist and he comes to be baptized and all of that, uh, he comes on the scene at around age 30. So you have this span of approximately three decades where there is nothing recorded in Scripture about what Jesus did, said, where he, you know, what, what was the, the major details of his life, except for this instance at age 12. Have you ever wondered why all the rest of it is left out? I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure why this one is put in. Because it is put in to verify... And to authenticate that Jesus indeed is who he was. Now, there's a verse, and I'll put this on the screen just so you don't have to turn there. But it says in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Let me just highlight some words there where it says made under the law. It's an indication that part of the the reality for Jesus to be our Savior was that he was to, while he was under the law, he was subject to the law, he was also obedient to the law, and he fulfilled the law. Because only a righteous person, a perfect person, a sinless person, and he was all of that and the only one who was all of that, could die for someone else's sins rather than having to deal with his own. So he was the perfect substitute. So part of what you see in this event that that is included in the text of Scripture is to verify that Jesus was a law-keeping person, that all that the law required, he kept. And let's think about that. And we'll, we'll kind of, we used this phrase last week, so I'll just bring it up for you again. Jesus in every way was uniquely qualified to be our Savior. The stamp of approval, both by God and man and everybody that, that comes to bear. And this is one of those occasions. Now, I want to just give you a quick list, and some of this will overlap with last week. But I want to think with, with us, I want to think together, I want you to think with me, about Jesus' qualifications under the law. And Luke makes sure, he, and the gospel writers, particularly Luke, make sure this gets put in. And we don't read it from a particularly Jewish mindset. Most of us have looked at this story, and we, there, there's, some, there's some, all, almost some humor there where they go a day's journey and they can't find him, and there's some poignancy, there's some weightiness when he says, I must, don't you know, I should be about, I'm, a, I'm about my father's business, and they, they don't understand that, we understand. So we just kind of think it's sort of quaint, it's kind of interesting. But there's something more than that, so let's build up to that, okay? So here's the things that a Jew of Jesus' day would say was the norm Either it was required under the law or it was expected of people who lived under the law. Okay, Number one, typically you were named in honor of someone in your family. 
that there was some family connection. You remember in chapter 1 and verse 31 where an angel comes to Mary and announces that she is going to conceive and she's going to be found with child of the Holy Spirit even though she was a virgin, never been with a man, that the angel tells her, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And then also, excuse me, I should say that Joseph also gets that same name dropped on him in a dream. So they both got this, this name. So it was named in honor of his family. Well, you remember there's another close story, and that is the birth story of John the Baptist that's also found in Luke chapter 1. And if we had time, you could just turn right back here. It's just a chapter before where we are at the moment. But you remember, uh, an angel comes and announces that John is going to be, bear, uh, going to be born of this couple who are, uh, are, are elderly. They're past childbearing years, and, and Elizabeth is barren. Now, it's not miraculous in the sense of a, uh, a virgin born, but it's miraculous in the sense if he was extraordinarily born. And you remember he said his name was, shall be called John. And you remember, Zacharias does not, uh, he has trouble accepting this whole thing as being real. And he says, you know, what's the sign? Well, here's the sign. You're not going to be able to speak until these things take place. So finally, months later now, he, the child is born. It's the day that where the child would have been circumcised. It's the day the name would be given. And Elizabeth says his name is John. Everybody's going to like, whoa, why do you call him John? There's no one else in his family named John. And then Zacharias gets a tablet and writes out his name is John. And it's at that moment God loosens his voice and he praises God. So we say, well... What about Jesus? You see, there's always this duality, and you see this. We talked about this in whether that uh, redemption price of five shekels was paid at the presentation. If you were with us last night, we, last week, I should say, we talked about that. But there's this duality that he is both God and man. He is the Son of God and also the Son of Man. So all these things fit together. The fact that he's called Jesus, which literally means God's salvation or God saves takes it back to his true heavenly father. So that one may not have been able to be seen so much by them, but we can check it off as one of those things that would, would, would be in play. In chapter 2 and verse 21, he was circumcised the eighth day, and that was part of the, the covenant of, of Israel to all the males. And then we looked at last week, he was presented in the temple on the 40th day, and especially being a firstborn male, he was brought in, given to a priest that probably was Simeon that was the one that received him Simeon recognizes that he is God's chosen one because God had told him he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ and uh, then uh, so all that takes place so check that one off the list and then we come to a little closer to this story here in 41 all, ma- all males were required to attend three festivals every year once they reached adulthood Passover is the one here because it says the Feast of Passover. So at the beginning of this new year, this Jewish new year, they went to Jerusalem. So the way this worked, all of adult males were expected to go and to be there for this Passover. That being the case, when a child became uh, considered of age, can we say it that way, they started going. And this was around the age of 12 or 13. They, at that point, would be considered to be a child of the covenant. So let's move on to that story next. Okay, so let's add a couple more. He was where he was supposed to be. If you want to flip up the next slide, I'm getting ahead of you a little bit. He was where he was supposed to be. This was seen by many witnesses, okay? That's the teachers of the law that you see here in this text. 
He was teaching and discussing the law with these teachers. So that's what he was all about. He was a, a man on a mission from God. That was verified by the teachers and the parents. And then this last one that we could check off the list, that he, he grew up in Nazareth. And you see in the end of this passage, as we, we go through it, verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. Now there's a verse I want to add to you just to, to, to kind of give this summary. And then we're going to go back over what it means to be a son of the covenant, what we're talking about in this passage. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 23, it says, Matthew says, He came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So that is there to, to, to be that which fulfills prophecy. That's a lot real quick, but let me summarize. In every point, every step along the way, and we're looking at one of those points tonight, Jesus fulfilled all the law. He was a man under the law. No one could say he, oh, he messed up here. His parents didn't fulfill that. He was not a law keeper here. He didn't come to the Passover and all these things. So let's go back to what's going on here in the near term in Luke chapter 2. At age 13, a, a young man was considered a man of the covenant or a son of the covenant. In other words, he was now responsible for his, his own actions. Okay, And uh, we would add to that that he obeyed his parents. And that's Exodus chapter 2 and verse 12, which is part of the Ten Commandments. It says that in, in the text, verse 51, he was subject to them. He also, it says, he grew in favor with God and men, and he grew in stature. His family and community verified all that, okay? So here's what would happen. Uh, at age 12, a young man is in preparation for becoming a son of the covenant, which meant he was responsible as an adult. He's responsible for his own actions. He was responsible to begin learning on a deeper level what it meant to be a son of this covenant of the law. You were expected to be starting to grow up and mature spiritually. You could now come to the temple and participate in worship. So this process would usually start at the, at, during the 12th year with this trip to Jerusalem. It was part of the training and, and, and all that and would conclude when the young man turned 13 and all these things would, would take place. So at that point, he was considered, the Galatians passage we looked at a little bit ago, as a person under the law. So let's go back to our text and put it in the context of what we're looking at. This is the reason this is important, okay, that this took place. So it says, 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So they were law-keeping people, did this every year. And when he was 12 years old, he went up to, the, to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Now we'll get back to the story about him, quote-unquote, not being with his parents, being lost or so forth. But I want you to go to 46, so it was after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers. He is the, how should we say it this way? He's the main attraction of what's going on. Uh, he's in the middle and they're, all eyes are on him. This, this young man who's 12 who should be just beginning to learn about the law is someone as they talk to him, they're astounded of what he knows about the law. He says, listening, both listening and asking them questions, 46 and then 47. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. How does someone this age know more than anyone should know at our ages? So he's, he's like this prodigy. He's like this wonder child. So they bring him in and they set him down in the middle. And he is, 
he is teaching in the round, so to speak, in his conversation. And I don't know, I just kind of picture it, you know, he starts having a conversation with a, with a teacher or two, a rabbi or two, and then a couple like, that's an interesting conversation over there. Let's go. And then someone else comes by, hey, you better get over here and listen to this. And it just, the crowd just starts gathering and all eyes are fastened on him. Don't you wish someone would have taken some notes? Don't you wish somebody would have just, you know, jotted a few recollections down? Maybe they did, and it's just not preserved for us. And obviously, if God wanted it preserved, he could have done that. But uh, it, it would have been fascinating to have eavesdropped on that conversation. But here's the thing. These teachers of the law, now, you go forward a few years to when Jesus now comes back on the scene at age 30, okay? Uh, probably some of them, if they're in the elderly category, may no longer be with us. But you have to expect with this group of people, there were some of the teachers of the law that when Jesus showed up, you would think would have made a connection. Let's see. He's about this age. You remember that child about that age that many years ago? I think what God was doing was dropping, a, in addition to verifying that Jesus was a law-keeping person, that he was qualified to be our Savior, I think what God was doing was dropping a gospel witness in the midst of these people who should have known the law and should have known the expectancy. And by everything you can read after this fact, every one of them, at least virtually as far as we can tell, missed it. There might have been some that, that we don't know about or, or, or maybe Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea that we looked at at the very beginning of the series. Maybe, maybe there was a few. But they missed it. Let's talk about their missed opportunities for these teachers of the law, okay? And let's just make a little list here and just remind ourselves, and then we're going to bring this home to us, okay? Let's see, let's see what, what happened here. The teachers of the law missed opportunities. They could have heard in Matthew chapter 1, 11 years before or so, about some wise men that showed up from the east. Because you remember when these wise men showed up in Matthew chapter 1, They immediately go to Herod, the quote-unquote king of the Jews, saying, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? Herod doesn't know anything about it. And you remember who he called? He called those that were conversant in the law. And you come in, you teachers, you scribes come in and tell me where it is that Christ should be born. And they said, in Bethlehem of Judea. That's an easy one. That's not even a hard trivia question. We all got that down. It's in Micah. It tells us exactly where he's going to be born. So Herod says, you wise men go down there and search around. And when you found him, you come bring me word. We know Herod's intentions were not honorable because of the rest of the story. But hasn't it ever crossed your mind? Why a few scribes, a few teachers of the law, if someone is showing up in a very unusual way saying the Messiah has been born... It's only seven miles from one place to the other. By the way, it's mo- mostly all downhill. It's, it's an easy walk to get, to get there. And you don't have any, any sense that these men even took advantage of that. They could have heard it from the shepherds. Because seven miles away, this group of shepherds, you remember after they came and found the child wrapped in the swaddling clothes and laying in a manger, it says they went out and told everybody. They just told all the people they could about this marvelous thing that we, they saw. We saw angels. We heard what they said. So God was dropping into Israel all of these hints that went broader than just the, the, the initial audience. And then what about Anna and Simeon? Again, this is about 11 years ago or thereabout, but in the story before, 
It says that, that they came. In fact, if you go up, it says, as, they, as when it comes to, to Anna, it says in verse 38, And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who look for redemption in Jerusalem. There would have been more than enough expectation for anyone looking to do that. But let's add to it. They could have learned from this encounter right here in Acts 2. Who is this young man? What's this all about? What does this mean? And maybe they just didn't ask the right question. We could also add to this list, to go on to the next slide. Uh, we talked about they could have heard uh, uh, from, from uh, all of those. Let me see. Let's go on. They could have learned from his miracles. That's where we want to go. They could have learned from his miracles. Now, this is after he becomes public in ministry. They could have learned from the way he taught authoritatively. Remember the scripture says he didn't teach like these guys taught. He taught with authority. He could have, they could have learned from fulfilled prophecy. This guy is fulfilling all the prophecy. That's one of the reasons Matthew drops it in about him living in Nazareth. That was part of fulfilled prophecy if they had made the connection. They could have learned from his personal prophecy. The things he said were going to happen did happen. And then the very obvious ones, they could have learned from his trial. Think about this. When, when Jesus is brought before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, Jesus is in the same building, the same facility that he was at age 12. He's come full circle from this event back to that same place. Now, I don't know if it's the exact same location, but somewhere, generally speaking, in the same area. And they put him on trial. Instead of listening to his claims with an open mind, they rejected him and condemned him to death. They could have learned from his crucifixion because it perfectly fulfilled Scripture. They certainly could have learned from his resurrection. We looked at this a few weeks ago. You remember the high priest? How they reacted when the, the soldiers, the guards came back and told what they said. Here, take some money. If anyone asks you, and we'll protect you on this. If anyone asks you, just say that the disciples came at night and stole his body. And that was the cover story. And if that's not enough, they could have heard from the, the spread of the gospel, particularly in, in Acts. Because Peter and others are preaching that this one who is now risen from the dead is the Lord and the Christ, the one that you condemned. There is more than enough opportunities that they should have known. They should have picked up a real clue right here, rather than just being amazed and then turning the page and forgetting all about it. Let's talk about who missed what in these this missed opportunities and what the lesson is. The lesson for us is that we miss many, many opportunities as well. We should look for some lessons every day of what God is speaking to us about. As I've thought about this, I, this, this got a little scary. How many lessons that God wanted to teach me if I just walked right on by and I missed the signal, missed the clue, missed what he's trying to say to me? How many times have, have, have I skipped over some quality time in God's word when he had something for me that day and I just didn't think I had time or I was distracted or I read it but just wasn't really paying attention? You ever had that awful experience where you're reading the Bible and you've read, you know, read a paragraph or you read a chapter and you get to the end and like, okay, what did I just read? You know, Because our minds are tended to wander. So before we throw too many stones their way, I just want to use this as an opportunity to remind us that I think God has at least something every day He wants to teach us. And what if we got into this discipline and this habit? At the end of every day, just ask God in a whispered prayer, Lord, what was the lesson you had for me today? What, what should I have learned today? Let's talk about what I, I've learned from you today. 
What, what, what expectancy would that put into our lives? What joy may that, may that put into our lives to think of that God has planted into this day something he wants to teach us, something from his word, something from someone, someone who wants to share, it's through, the, through the example of someone. I've got to tell you, I, I've learned a lot from, from many of you folks. I learned something corporately from all of you, just that you're here and, and you're faithful. But, but I, the things you do for the Lord, the things I know you're going through, and some of you have been through some really tough stuff, and I've seen the resilience of your faith in the Lord. Uh, some of you have been through great joys and great opportunities, and I see how you, you praise the Lord for that. That's what the family of God is also to do, to learn from his word, to learn from the, the living examples that are around us. And you can learn from any source you, you want to look at. Uh, sometimes it's just the magnificence of creation and the beauty of creation and to see what, what is, is out there <laughs> that he's made. And then you have to calculate, as wonderful as this world is, this world is messed up. It's been, it's been smashed, it's been destroyed, it's been cursed, and it's still a beautiful place. What must it have been like before mankind got into the picture and we messed it up? What will it be like when Jesus comes back and restores it back to an Eden-like paradise yet future? Learn those kind of lessons along the way. Let's add to this just a moment. Now let's just see who missed what here for just a moment. Okay, the teachers of the law, they missed the one, the one, and maybe we should say it this way, the one and only one who kept the law. One of the things, and it doesn't say in the text, it just says they were astonished at his understanding. One of the things that typically they would question themselves on in this rabbinic tradition is how do we apply it? And oftentimes, and you see this in the Pharisees later in Jesus' ministry, where they got all wrapped up into trying to define in a very legalistic sense what, what the law required. And then, especially the Pharisees, this is the reason Jesus called them out as hypocrites, they would, they would find exceptions to that. One of the things was, it says the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you do your work, on the seventh you don't work. Okay, that was the law. So they had prescribed exactly how far you could walk on the Sabbath before it became work. In other words, it was down to how many steps and, and actually measured out. So they, 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 so they were determining whether you keep the law. Oh, it took one step too many? And make sure you, and maybe we should back off some of these. So they would get into all this minutia because they were trying to determine who's going to keep the law and who, who is keeping the law. But interestingly, and this, is, this has been documented from history, they had in the law that you could walk so far on a Sabbath day and then it became work. So you'd, you'd, if you took one more step, you'd break the law. Except if it was really needful and you needed some food. Because if you really needed some food, you could take extra steps and you wouldn't break the law. I'm not making this up. So what they would do, they would measure out the places they wanted to go, how far they could walk on a Sabbath day, and have a little box along the side of the road that had some little pieces of bread in it. So I could walk my Sabbath day's journey, but since I need some food... I take it out, and then you would, everything would reset, and I could walk another Sabbath day's journey and get my next box of crackers along the way. Now, to us, that seems mind-blowingly ridiculous, and it was. But here they were talking to a person as they questioned him. They should have realized he's keeping the law in a way that we don't know anything about. It's not just legalism. It's heart. It's reality but they completely missed it. They missed the one who understood the law. On some level, they had to be astonished that he, he got it. 
he got the point of it. And how many of them missed the point? How many of them missed the point? That, that, that what is spiritual, what is our God relationship is above all. And Jesus highlighted that again and again and again. That, uh, you know, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the, the law says, you should not murder, not kill. Well, everybody's going to say yes. But then Jesus heightened it to the, to, the, to the issue of heart. He says, but if you hate your brother without cause, you're as guilty as if you killed him in, in, in reality. The heart matters, you see. So they missed it. So here's a lesson for us. We can assume we already know. You know, I already know that. We opened the Bible, already got that, pass over that. I don't need that anymore. And that's the problem the teachers of the law were stuck in when they encountered Jesus at age 12. We're the teachers of the law. We know. Instead, we should do this. We should come before God's word with a completely humble, seeking spirit. We should come before this word, this word with an attitude, Lord, I know so little compared to how much there is here. Can I say it this way? We should come hungry. We should come needy. We should come with the thankfulness that we have access to what God wants to say to us and treat it as the treasure that it is. Well, let's talk about Mary and Joseph since they're in the story. And let's uh, continue on with who missed what with them, all right? So Joseph and Mary, let's talk about them. They also missed one who kept the law. And, and I, I want to just be very careful. I don't want to throw too much blame on Mary and Joseph. First of all, how would you like the job of raising a perfect child? Now, some of you might think, boy, that would be a real treat. But how would you like to be raising a perfect child when you're not a perfect parent? And you're not a perfect person. Can you imagine the layers of guilt this could just sling on you again and again? And, and how inept you would feel? And God bless those of you that are, in, that are active in parenting. Because, you know, it, it's tough. It's, it, it's, it's challenging. And we got to throw ourselves on the Lord. But they saw, and if they were honest with themselves, they were seeing. They'd have 12 years of experience now. And you assume, we know Jesus had other brothers and sisters that were fully Mary and Joseph's. So there were, he was the oldest brother of some multiple brothers and sisters along the way. And can I just say the obvious? They certainly should, could tell the difference between Jesus and the rest of this mob, right? The rest of this little clan. There's Jesus and there's everyone else. But, but the fact was, when, when he says to them, why do you seek me, verse 40... Do you not know I must be about my father's business? They did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Now, I don't fault them because I would have missed it too. I would have missed it just, I'm sure. I, I, I would be right where they are. But they missed the fact that he is not theirs. That Joseph is not his father. That God is his father. And he is the one who kept the law. They missed the one who understood the law. We already talked about that, but I just wanted to reiterate it. And, and for them, more particularly, they missed the mission of God, that he was on a mission from God. Now, I, I do want to just think my way through this story just a little bit because most of us can relate to it, okay? So they'd finished the days, it says in 43, uh, being there, which would be about an eight-day stay, okay? 
Because you would come for Passover, and immediately the, the, the Feast of first fruits followed on for the next seven days. So they stayed for the whole period. So they left Nazareth, which is going to be a multi-day journey on foot up north. They come down south, but then they go up in elevation. Typically, they come down the, the Jordanian Valley at Jericho. Then you turn east and go up what's known as the Jericho Road, which is still in existence. It's more of a, a horse path in its original, just a narrow path that snakes its way up in elevation to get up on the plateau, the Judean plateau where Jerusalem is. And then you would find lodging, or more likely, you'd just sort of camp out for eight days, wherever and whenever. It was sort of like a camp meeting time, if that means anything to you as far as a picture. But uh, they would participate in worship. It was a high time. And notice it says it uses the word the company, supposing him to have been in the company. Who is the company? That probably is extended family, perhaps, <coughs> if they had any close relatives in Nazareth. We know they had relatives of some connection down in Bethlehem. But uh, it's probably more the community. I mean, because all of the males, Passover, we're leaving where we are. We live in Nazareth. It's going to be a multi-day journey. So we pack up and we go as a group. So the kids hang out together and the wives are talking to other wives and the men are talking to other men and you're just kind of walking along. And you've got to imagine this is sort of spread out, not, every, not everybody's shoulder to shoulder this way. You're kind of following you assume he's with all the kids and they stop for the first night and wherever that may happen to be and we start doing a head count for all of the Mary Joseph kids as they kind of separate them from all the other Nazareth kids and they do a head count and one is missing. How would you feel at that moment? You're scared and embarrassed all at the same time, right? I mean, you're scared for like, where is my 12-year-old? You know, and, and, and all the other kids that are there. So you think about this. They have this reality that they've got to go back, and they go back, and it says it took, from, from start to finish, it took three days. They found them of all places in the temple. That suggests to me that was not the first place they looked. That was not where they went first. They probably went back to wherever they were staying and talked to the people that, that, that they interacted with and the places they went in Jerusalem. And finally, failing that, they go in the temple, and of all things, there's Jesus sitting in the midst talking to them. And in typical parental fashion, son, why have you done this to us? I don't fault them for this. They're probably easier than I would have been. Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. You know what they're accusing Jesus of doing? They're accusing Jesus of what every other child in that situation would have done, except it didn't apply in Jesus' case because they were raising a perfect child. And uh, so Jesus had done nothing wrong. And he uses this, again, to, to shed some light on this, although they missed it, because it says in the text, they, they didn't understand the statement which he spoke to him. He says, why did you seek me? Now, I take it that is probably meaning not why did you come looking for me, but, but, but why, did you, why did you seek me? Why were you looking everywhere? You should have known I'd be here. You didn't have to go out playing hide and seek with me. You should have known I'd be here. Why? Because... Do you not know that I must be about my father's business? When I came to the temple for the first time as a now young man on the verge of considering now being a child of the covenant, we've come here, and I'm here to serve God. He was a man on a mission. They missed that mission. Well, here's the lesson, and maybe this will help us a little bit. Here, and Again, I, I have a lot of sympathy for Mary and Joseph. 
we can only see what we can see. We only see what we see. What these minds can perceive, what these eyes can, can, can detect, what we can hear with these ears, that's all they had to go on. Their baseline was just the normal life of their time. And that is us. Except we have a resource that is way beyond what our eyes, our ears, and our minds can do. And that is simply this. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. We have God himself. And and remember, Jesus promised the disciples that after I'm gone, I'm going to send you another helper, another person to come alongside. It's going to be the Spirit of God we know that to be. But he's going to, when he comes, he will teach you all things. And part of what he did, he called to remembrance those things that Jesus had taught earlier. But now, because the Spirit is there, he gave them the ability to understand. To understand who God is and to understand what God does and to understand what God wants to reveal himself to us takes supernatural power. The great news is when you humbled yourself and you trusted Christ as your Savior, and probably at that moment you didn't even realize it, and probably many times in our spiritual life we don't even realize it, but God in the person of the Spirit has come in and set up shop made a home, has tabernacled with us, and he lives within us to be our guide, to be our teacher. I think we need to remind ourselves of that when we come to, come to church, when we get together with others to study God's word, when we open the word for ourselves. If it weren't for him, I wouldn't understand a fraction, maybe next to nothing of what I understand. Some of you had this experience before you, were, before you became a follower of Christ, before you were saved, you probably read the Bible. If you had that experience, it's just like, what in the world? I don't get it. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. When the Spirit of God comes in, it starts to make sense. It starts to click. It starts to, to be that which becomes precious to us. So we have this wonderful, wonderful thing. And then it says this as it concludes. 51. He went down with them to Nazareth and was subject to them. Even though they were not perfect, he was subject to them. He kept the law. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. Do you ever wonder why it said that? Well, that's what a mother would do. Check. I think Luke embeds a little clue into the text. Because I think that somewhere, is when he's doing his research, now the Spirit of God's directing him. This is a Spirit of God produced document, the, the Gospel of Luke, as is all the Bible. But I think when he was gathering the information that God was going to craft into the text of Scripture under the inspiration of the Spirit... I think we know Mary was still living when Jesus was crucified and sometime after. And she was probably a very fairly young woman when she conceived and bore Jesus. I think he sat down with Mary and Mary's telling him all this stuff that no one else probably even remembered. And then there was that time, Luke. Jesus was 12. Yeah, I remember when I first, you know, other people went to the temple. That's part of what the Jews do. Well, it was unusual for this. And she tells him the story. Because she's had all this bound up in her heart for all these years. And the Spirit of God, who is our ultimate teacher, has given us a wonderful gift. Because this is now passed on from Mary to Luke, to the text of Scripture, from the mouth of God to our ears. To tell us that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. And that's kind of a... The favor with God and men, I understand... God was pleased and he had a good relationship and was pleasing to the men he was around. But it's hard for me to picture God increasing in wisdom, but Jesus, who is God, increasing in wisdom. 
when he already knows all there is to know. In stature, that's a little easier. He's just growing up from, from infancy to young adulthood to, you know, to adulthood. But don't forget that Jesus was God and man, and don't ever pretend that we'll ever figure that one out, this side of heaven. We may not even figure it out on the other side in heaven, perhaps. But nonetheless, God in the person of the Spirit was his teacher too. And uh, it was teaching him along in some fashion because that's what it says in the text of Scripture. So ask the Holy Spirit to be your teacher and depend on this wonderful resource that God has for us.